Kassat Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to season four of Cassat Conversations. I am your host, Heather Haslam. This season, we will explore the impact of trauma on those who work in human services. You'll hear from researchers, authors, and people with lived experience. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Today, I'm happy to welcome Beverly Kyer. Beverly is an author, speaker, and compassion fatigue specialist. Welcome, Beverly. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you, Heather. I'm so happy to be here and honored to have this opportunity to talk to you about this most important subject. Such an important subject and really important for our listeners So as we get started, please share with us a little bit about your story and how you came to write your book. All right. Um, Let me be as brief as I can, because this story is expensive. But I'll say this. Um, I'm armed with the idea of compassion fatigue from my own personal experiences. I began my academic career, post-academic career, as um, the only social worker in a pediatric oncology unit. These are children with cancer and leukemia, and these are parents facing one of the major parental nightmares of children with potentially fatal and fatal illnesses, helping them navigate the, the healthcare system and comply with the treatment protocols. But that was my work uh, for a number of years. And then I moved from there because I got invited to work on a collaboration with the uh, VA Medical Center, Psychiatric Department and Department of Defense, to be trained to work with veterans, treat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder coming back from Vietnam. Did that for a great number of years. They eventually asked us to come in-house from a program that was called Operation Outreach, satellite offices all over the country, but come in-house and work with the other veterans who were still there from Korea and World War II, eventually the Gulf War veterans as well, did that for several years. And then I went to child welfare, and you well know child welfare, that Mm. used to neglect as an equal opportunity predator and, you know, faced all of the horrors and distresses of what that meant to children and working with their families as well. Ultimately, in each of these roles, at some point, I began to change and shift and struggle in a way that I didn't necessarily understand, but other people saw changes in my behavior, my emotions, my mood swings, my clumsiness, my impatience with my family. And I had compassion fatigue and didn't even know it. But ultimately what happened, and I think I want to attribute a great deal of that to working with children being victimized, violated in horrific ways, I suffered heart failure. And I didn't only suffer it once, I suffered it twice. My wonderful management team at the time downsized my work, got me some support. But me, like many workers in the field of child welfare or any (laughs) adult protective services, I went back to my own patterns. And so I suffered heart failure again a second time, but that was the big wallop, three months of intensive rehab. And what that did, (laughs) uh, it opened my eyes. It made me sit down because I couldn't do anything else but think retrospectively, uh, not just about myself and what happened and how could this happen, because to my estimation, I didn't fit the profile, if you will, whatever that means for heart failure. I enjoyed the work. I was passionate about the work, committed about the work, flew out the bed, dedicated. That was my purpose in life. But this happened to me. It's sort of like I thought like uh, the love I felt for these children, these families, these veterans, uh, some would make me immune to getting sick in the execution of work. I also thought a lot about the colleagues I'd work with, whether they were my direct co-workers or the collaborative relationships, you know, with the other agencies we work with, um, that have fallen away, broken down, changes in their behavior and their characteristics, the staff conflicts, the depression, the suicides among colleagues, uh, the alcoholism and stuff. And it all kind of came together, made me do a lot of research. And I discovered a multiplicity, a plethora of illnesses that were all directly related to stress, or let me say toxic stress syndrome, work-related. Now, that also made me take a look at personal factors, too, not just the professional ones, but combined. That's 
what spilled out and the research made me realize it was so much to talk about, so much to know, because this is what I did on a survey, uh, personal surveys I did, is understand that most of the people who do this work, the frontline workers, wherever they are, whatever capacity they work in, we don't realize that the stress is taking a hold of us till it knocks us down. Mm. So I decided to write the book and really inform uh, the field, various fields of services, human services, human service providers, and all of the professions, all of the fields and paraprofessional fields, to let them know, to inform about the risks, uh, the manifestations, what to see, how to have early awareness about it, and what to do about it, all the practical things, strategies and methodologies and habits that get developed to mitigate the effect. Because you're going to have compassion fatigue if you're in human services. You're going to have some, but you could mitigate the effects. You could reverse it. You could not let it get so bad that it really uh, impacts your health in uh, detrimental ways. So that was why I wrote the book. Yeah. So this really personal experience that you've had and also noticing it in your colleagues. And the part that I'm really struck about is the importance of peer relationships, because mm-hmm. it sounds like you didn't recognize it in yourself and mm-hmm. other people likely didn't recognize it in themselves, but that you recognized it in each other. Um, yeah. And then that you had people that cared enough about you really to say, hey, Beverly, like, we're going to create you some space so that you can take care of yourself, which is really beautiful and powerful. To pull your coat, to pull your leg, to alert you. You see it at the conference table when people are talking too much and don't realize they've lost their audience. When they're too pressured, when they're too controlling. All of a sudden, out of character, I even had a white male colleague say to me one day in the kitchen, the, the office dining room, said, Beverly, your face is turning gray, and which is a risky thing for him to say, <laughs> I knew him enough. I just said, oh, my God, I need to uh, exfoliate. But what he saw, which was going to happen two days later, I had I went into heart failure. He saw it coming. He saw yeah. it coming. Yeah. So we do need those relationships to notice what we don't notice while we're intensely involved in the work and the service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're putting your heart and soul into mm-hmm. your work. Um, and, you know, you spoke about leaping out of bed and just wanting to be there for the people that you're serving and giving everything your all. It is hard to see mm-hmm. what what the impact mm-hmm. is at times. Mm-hmm. And even if you have some idea, you know, one of the things we do is minimize and rationalize. I was short of breath for probably a few weeks before. I said, oh, you got to lose some weight. And like I said, with my White male colleagues said, your face is turning grassy. Oh, I got to exfoliate. I had a rationale for everything. We minimize because what's important to us is them, mm-hmm. whomever they are, uh, so we don't notice. Yeah. Hmm. So as we dive in, I'd love for you to share with us really your definition of compassion fatigue. All right. Uh, it's a broad definition, but most people will understand the two clinical terms for compassion fatigue, and they are secondary trauma and vicarious trauma. The secondary trauma is what we feel on behalf of something awful that has happened to somebody else. You hear about the shooting, the bombings, the fires, the this, the that, the kidnappings. And, stuff. and we could feel outrage. We could feel deeply grieved. We could feel horrified in behalf of that. And I dare say when you get a case file, the circumstances that has brought that person to your agency, you're already feeling some secondary distress in behalf of them and how those things may not have the outcome you want. One of my uh, compulsions was if I had a, a disaster on a school shooting, whatever case, a burning of a church, a bombing of a synagogue or something like that, and I get to looking and looking and looking, I want to see an outcome Somebody else is saved. Somebody else is rescued. Some people survived. They found a missing child or the missing parent who went hiking. That's secondary trauma. The other one is vicarious trauma. And that talks about our constant exposure and therefore absorption of the tragedies, the crisis, the chaos that other people face. Because we're in the midst of that and have some level, moderate to great level of responsibility for the well-being of these people. That's vicarious trauma. And I'm going to tell you what it has done. 
for most, if not all of us, it changed us. Because we know, unlike people who don't work in human services, the worst that could happen. And it's changed us in a way that I dare say that all of us are far more hypervigilant and hyper alert, have more startle response than the rest of the people who work in what I call the widget world. I respectfully to say widget because they work on stuff, not human tragedy, crisis, suffering, tragedies and stuff like that. So those are the two clinical terms for compassion fatigue, which is it is a syndrome that very much mirrors post-traumatic stress disorder. Very similar to what the veterans face. Of course, their life threat, the threat to their lives is far more dangerous. But chemically, we have the same kind of reactions. We are triggered by similar events, sights and sounds and smells and uh, uh, all the audio things and the touch kinds of things. Uh, We could experience that. It is said by some that it is simply the cost of caring. I think uh, Dr. Charles Figley, who came up with the construct of compassion fatigue, said this very wisely. He said, uh, the very qualities of caring and compassion and uh, empathy that allow us to do this service to help others puts us in a direct path of compassion fatigue. There's no way of really avoiding it because you do care. See, we're not flipping hamburgers. We're working with people who are suffering. He says, but the good news, if you understand it, as a predictable come, and I'm talking about in levels. Everybody doesn't get hit with the worst aspect of it. Some give me mild, moderate, or whatever. But he says, if you understand that it's a predictable outcome of the work, the service that you do, then what is predictable is preventable. The name of the game is to have early intervention. And again, that will largely come from your colleagues, your, your, your relationships at notice, so that you could reverse the effects always. But that's an on going thing. So that that's basically how I would encapsulate that uh, definition called compassion fatigue. I just love that term. I do too. I love that term. Um, I, I love this kind of imagery. It, it sounds weird, but like swimming, it's, you know, the work in human services, you're swimming essentially in other people's trauma mm-hmm. and there is an inherent impact on it. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, I'm not sure I want to word this, but really like in some, you know, like in some ways we try to train people not to feel such as sometimes in medicine, um, Mm -hmm. looking at parts of people um, or um, I'm thinking of even like veterans or first responders in certain ways, like just turning it on, getting the work done and moving Mm -hmm. on. Um, and then in social work, I feel like training is a little bit different. So I'm curious if you um, think that there's like a difference in the way that people are trained in how we're showing up and dealing um, with other people's trauma. And if there's a best practices when it comes to training, because these are human. Um, it is human suffering that we're dealing with on all differing levels. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It makes perfect sense to me. And people would argue on my opinions and my experience about it. I don't really, really address that. The words that we use largely in social work school, and I did train with veterans to work with veterans. They use words like being objective. Watch your boundaries. Kind of keep Mm -hmm. your place. It's almost like it's a message in there, built in there that says, if it bothers you, this is not a good fit. (laughs) If you feel emotional about something awful that has happened to another warm-blooded human being, that's something wrong with Mm -hmm. you. So I I have issues with that. And I know that some people could be rather stoic when they face tragedies or see horrible things happen. But I wonder, what do they do about it? You see, uh, one of the things that killed 57,000 veterans when they came home from that war is they didn't talk about it. They didn't say anything about it. They stuffed it. You talk about all of that repressed uh, memory, repressed atrocities that they face and experience, and the things that trigger them when they get back uh, to the homeland, uh, uh, the mainland again. Uh, that's what killed them, it tore them apart. So what are these people doing who do put up this exterior called objectivity and clear boundaries and stoicism? Are they drinking? Are they depressed? What is the nature of their relationships? Like, 
And I used to come home from work with children dying in the cancer unit. Some of them dying while I'm sitting at the bedside. And I get home and I go through my door. And my beautiful children come running to the door. Mommy, 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 look at this. I want you to see this. And one of them will always be complaining, particularly the preteen. It's not fair. It's not fair. And I'm thinking about the child who died. You know, and I just want to say, go away. <laughs> I, I don't even want to and my husband said, well, baby, we got to talk. And I want to say, go away. But what do you, if, if I don't do something, I said, I, you know, he figured out, he said, baby, you need to cry. Come on, come on, come on. In the room or something, he would call me a nice bubble bath. And I do need to cry and I probably need to cuss. I need to probably go someplace and scream. I need to express and release that stuff. So one of my major strategies, which is really jumping the gun, that I feel that everybody who works in human services should learn Beverly's three R's. And that is to release, to reboot, and to recharge every single day. Get it off your chest in whatever form that your personality or your faith-based practice allows to do. But don't hold on to that acting like it doesn't touch you. If you are a human Mm -hmm. being, it does touch you. Yeah. Even if it enrages, it does touch you. This makes me think of first responders, or as my colleague, Dr. Stephen Nicholas says, warrior servants, and they have to go in and be hypervigilant in certain situations and be armored and ready to deal with certain things. Mm-hmm. And when you go home, what are you doing to take that the armor off? And so I love these three R's because there's, you know, there's this balance between people keeping themselves and others safe Mm -hmm. and how do you deal with the atrocities that you've seen Mm -hmm. in the work that you do? Mm -hmm. And so it's a really, I don't know, it's a really interesting balance that I don't think we've necessarily. It's a long conversation I have because it's not like a switch you could just turn off and turn Mm -hmm. off. But I know that I've heard from thousands of veterans and thousands of frontline workers I work. It is hard to, once you're in that mode of protection and uh, um, prevention, and you're angry and you're enraged, you're holding it, and you're being super alert and ramped up for the next thing that could go wrong. When you get home or get with other relationships where you should have your warmer, more human connective self, it's almost impossible to switch to switch, flip the switch, and come on down. It's just, it's just not uh, 100. You could put up an exterior, you could put up a facade, you pretend that you're okay, but inside, I see, I studied. A great deal of neurophysiology to understand how trauma works in the human body. The body never forgets. It never forgets. It holds on to that stuff. Matter of fact, it stores it in different places, different mechanisms. And it is so easily, Heather, easily triggered by something the body will always remember. What it smelled, what it heard, what it felt, what it saw, what it tasted. You know, the taste of bile, bile backs up in my mouth in horrible situations. And so you have a similar situation that sounds like, feels like uh, those, 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 those senses are activated. And there you are back in that situation, even if you're at a birthday party or sitting at church or, you know, the synagogue or a wedding or a, a cookout with the family. It, it, this comes back and the body is triggered. The, the mind is triggered. Maybe you don't even cognitively understand why you're so upset, why you're so acutely grieved for no apparent reason. But it's there. So I I think there's more work, uh, more understanding we need to do about people who are turned to this, turn it off. In the moment, you need to stay yourself. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I still say when the situation, the crisis has subsided and you've done what you needed to do, then you need to release and reboot and recharge before you go back into the next situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can... I can definitely see the value in that and the need for that. And we do need to understand really the impact of this, um, the impact of trauma, witnessing mm-hmm. that um, other people's trauma on mm-hmm. the physical body. It's yes. really interesting as and you start mind. to dive in. Yeah, mm-hmm. the body, mind, it is really impacted. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the professions? I think we've named a few of them, um, but that may experience compassion fatigue that a person might not think of. Well, the obvious people, we know the medical teams, you know, the mental health teams, you know, the law enforcement, you know, 
uh, expand to rescue and recovery teams. You know that they get it. But people really think of some groups like teachers. And uh, I spent, prior to COVID, I think I spent 11 years consulting with schools that had traumatized mm-hmm. kids in the classroom and they struggled with behavior, but they don't even know what walked in the classroom with that. But the demand on the teachers, the impact on the teachers, which was difficult before COVID, but I'll use this term that when it comes to child abuse and parents who have issues of abuse and the resulting behaviors, the schools have become the first line of defense because those children walk into school having been victimized, having been abused, having been severely neglected, and the teachers have to deal with those behaviors that they think that they came to teach, but they're trying to control behaviors without knowing what motivates the behaviors. Also, uh, 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 clergy. People don't think mm-hmm. about them too, but it's actually a high uh, incidences of suicide because they're trying to be confidential too. Or you, you know, the seal of confession, but other, you know, in the Protestant, other faiths, they do a very similar thing. And another thing I know about clergy, because I come from a pastoral family, is these people, these men and women do not delegate. They people show up to the hospital, show up to the funeral, show up to services a day, but they hear the stories, they hear the horrors, and they don't know, and I don't think that too many of them are clinically trained to know what to do with what they hear, except to console or to comfort. And like I said, keep it to themselves. So they hold a lot of distressing uh, content, traumatic material within themselves. The justice system, lawyers and attorneys, I had so many clients that come forth, and a lot of them were severely injured by the COVID thing also because of the quarantine period, but they couldn't get to children where they knew there were allegations of abuse mm. because they couldn't hold courts, they couldn't do this, they couldn't, you know, the hearings, they couldn't make the visitation. And they know that the kids were in the predator's hands, maybe in the same house. Uh, incidentally, uh, I don't know if you want to say this one, but uh, the, the child fatality rate almost doubled in the first mm. two months of the COVID pandemic because they couldn't get to them and the guilt they failed of having failed and having abandoned. I'm talking about court officers. I'm talking about judges, and I'm talking about lawyers because they spoke to me about that. Uh, non-direct care services in the offices. Uh, they is often thought or mistakenly thought that because they don't necessarily have hands-on direct care of your clients, let's say in the uh, the child services, the family services, the adult protective services, or whatever the case is. They're exposed to the atmosphere, the environment, the distress, the anger, the rage, the pressure, the demands of what's going on in the atmosphere of that office. And they're very, very subject to vicarious traumatization, notwithstanding Mm -hmm. that they may also be dealing with the emotions and attitudes and behaviors of people who are hurt. Hurt people hurt people. And the person at the desk is just a subject to get the bite back. Is anybody else so? We don't think of them uh, enough. The main group I want to say that we need to take a look at and help them to see it coming are family caregivers. Mm. Family caregivers, they could be taking care of their elder parents. They could be taking care of spouses, uh, their own sisters and brothers who are adults. They're taking care of their children. Statistically, they may get very sick and they may die before the people they're taking care of because there's no cutoff. They may go to work, they may be stay-at-home people, but they're taking care of their house and they're taking care of other people. They're taking care of their families and taking care of some, and, you know, with the appointments, the visitations, the pharmacology, the meals and all of that stuff, the pressure, demand, the needs of people who are hurting and in pain and just need you to be available. It's this constant, constant demand, and they come apart. Um, and maybe they do, or maybe they just get sick because they, too, think that, you know, if I talk to any of them, and if you talk to them, they say, well, I love my mother, and I love my dad, and I love my brother, and I, and I love, you know, you love their children and stuff, and their spouse. But that does not make you immune to the constant pressure with no turnoff. And there's another thing that puts them at risk, as many other people, um, usually in many, many families, this is a cultural thing, but I pay attention to that. There's a designated person who's doing all the work in the caregiving but the other families kind of leave that responsibility to them. And they, too, don't necessarily delegate too well to call somebody and say, Caesar, I need you to take mom to this appointment. I need you to pick up some groceries that she needs or go to the pharmacy, make that run for me. Um, so these are these, some of the other folks 
um, that may experience, but they need us to consider and pay attention to that. Pay attention yeah. sometimes, guide, navigate. And something I was looking forward to in, in groups is coaching in the, f- in the future because they don't see it and they don't see a way out. They just work. Uh, what do you call that? Multitasking <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to the degree. To the yeah. degree. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think about family caregivers, right? There is no time where you're off, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Never. It's it's twenty four seven, and um, you can be called called upon at any time as a family caregiver, mm-hmm. and that you can see where that could become challenging really quickly. And what you said about um, love doesn't make us immune to compassion mm-hmm. fatigue. The impact on our body minds is this mm-hmm. is a lot. Body's taking a beating. So as you talk about the impact or what we can look out for or see, um, what are some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue? So there, I had divided them between uh, professional uh, symptoms and personal symptoms. And I'd like us to really look at them in totality because, we, again, we tend to minimize some things. But in the professional uh, uh, arena, you would see things like low morale, avoiding tasks, particularly those tasks that remind you or re-trigger you of some awful distressing or traumatic work-related event. Apathy. Now, that's something people could throw up back. Like, ain't nothing touching them uh, because they're supposed to be objective or keep their boundaries. But don't trust apathy because it may not, it could look like apathy, but it may be that wall that goes up because the body mind says, I can't take another thing. I can't take another thing. So you want to notice that poor work commitments, obviously staff conflicts, people get irritable. They get intense. They feel judged. Even if you ask them a question, they get to defending what they were doing. Or if something goes wrong in their case, uh, a child or an adult or a senior person is injured and something like that, you'll notice that they start defending. I did and I did, I did, because that's something that rises to the surface first. Uh, exhaustion. Um I look at exhaustion this way. There's physical and there's emotional. Physical, you may be able to get a second win, but emotional will hit you to such an extent that you sometimes can't get up and face another day. You'll notice that. And obviously that will lead to uh, a lot of absenteeism, work-related accidents and stuff, and uh, withdrawal from colleagues. Personally, Culturally, some people don't want you to know, don't hope you don't see and notice that they're struggling. And so they kind of recede into the shadows. And those are the very people you need to go after and engage them because they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Now, in the personal impacts, and and I really say uh, look for these things because the sooner you as a coworker and colleague or supervisor or manager can notice, you could do what what I like to call early intervention, which is always the best method. You don't let it just go all the way down uh, the rabbit trail, but you do something right away. But there's like uh, six impact areas for compassion fatigue, and they are cognitive and emotional and behavioral, uh, interpersonal, you can wreck a relationship, spiritual and physical. Never minimize, forget the spiritual part of people's life. Under the cognitive, there you know, just be things like the spaciness or confusion, which is easy, or rigidity. Uh, I, I used to laugh at my own self, <laughs> rigidity, because that's where you people just kind of fly and use the same intervention, just like, you know, they just kind of fly off and do that, but they never worked the first time. But it's kind of like a narrowing of our, the box. You know, we get tunnel vision when we're under too much stress, and a part of the brain doesn't allow you to see outside of the box. It doesn't mean they're not confident. It just means there's too much going on. Self-doubt. Self-doubt. Mm-hmm. That was probably one of the most painful things about my first post-graduate uh, uh, work experiences that I began to question myself. And I've had, a, when I tell that story, a lot of people say, mine do too. I wasn't knowing at some point that anything I did was really making a difference. I questioned, my, 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 I didn't even uh, feel this confident about my own competence anymore. And if you talk to many people, they could get like that. Any emotional, obviously, emotional roller coasters and anxiety and uh, feeling overwhelmed, feeling fair, and you can't even put your finger on, but you're anticipating the next thing. You can't even relax when things are calm, because like I said, that that, 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 that vicarious to have you looking for something that is going to go wrong. This is not going to last. That, that, that kind of thing going on. 
uh, acute sadness, depression. Now, I want to say this, because uh, I've done this in my trainings for years. I think most, if not all of us, are depressed in this way. I'm not talking about a clinical depression. I'm talking about a depletion, depression, because there's little, there's some things to celebrate in our work. There's some outcomes that we feel really, really good about it. But much of what gets to happen on a day-to-day basis is uh, it doesn't work out the way we want. So we're most oftentimes in what I call a depressed state, just low energy, constantly, constantly struggling, which means in the body, the physicality of a person, it depletes all of our energies, creative energies, emotional energies, physical energies, uh, all kinds of energies. It just kind of pulls us, pulls us, pulls us down. And what that does, it goes over to the physical impact. All of us have some challenges to our immune system. The body has to figure out how to compensate for that draining and depletion of energy. So it goes over to the immune system and drains on it, taps on it, and will actually shut it completely down. And that's medically documented. I was really, really concerned when they talked about who was at risk with the uh, first level of the virus, the COVID-19. I said, oh, human service providers are at risk because they're depleted. The immune system is compromised. So I've always encouraged people to do some things about that, too. Um, in the behavioral arena, moodiness and clinginess and the hypervigilance is there. Um, I'm going to say how that worked at my household because I worked in child welfare my children didn't get to spend a night in nobody's house. <laughs> if there was a man or a cousin or a big brother, mm-mm. and some women too, I just they didn't trust. It was you know they have very little opportunity. People come to my house, their friends, but they weren't going. Does that make sense too? I watched mm-hmm. them in a different kind of way. They forgave me, but you get my point. That 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 Absolutely. has changed us too. Uh, uh, use of negative coping skills. I'll be the first one to admit. When I'm upset emotionally, I eat all the wrong stuff. You like a bag of barbecue potato chips? The party size bag. You understand what I'm saying? I drink too much. It's not the Friday night glass of wine at the end of the work day. It might be a cocktail almost every evening during my crisis. Does that make sense to you? Too much pasta. Mm-hmm. So if you ask people, they will consume all of the carbohydrates, if you will, when they're stressed. One. But there's a lot of negative coping skills to do. Uh, what I call retail therapy, too much spending. You you name it, you pick it. Is this what people do? Uh, the spiritual peace, which is really sad and tragic because I've seen it so many times, is a loss of purpose. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's going to happen? Nothing is going to work. Um, people who have uh, more religious belief systems uh, make some question. God, and I heard a million people from all different ethnic groups say, how could God let this happen, you know, to innocent elder, innocent uh, man or woman or child or something like that? Uh, pervasive helplessness, that nothing I do is going to matter. It's not going to work. It's not going to last, even if I get it together uh, in the uh, interpersonal relationships where you could just imagine the uh, uh, projecting your anger onto somebody else. The impatience I felt with my own children uh, the space and time I didn't have my own husband because I'm working with people who are really suffering. I don't know, my, 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 my kids ain't got nothing to complain about, that, which is unfair because children are supposed to complain. <laughs> That's part of their development. It's right to do that. Um, um, uh, yeah, but th- those kinds of things, the kind of conflicts within your house, the mistrust that you could have that you're being judged or the perception of that, that interfere with a lot of family relationships. And of course, in the physical arena, like I said, the immune system is compromised. I really encourage people to take a look at that, uh, include some alternative healthcare practices along with their traditional medicine to really just always booster the system. Um, uh, shock syndrome, dizziness, breathing difficulties. Uh, some of us hyperventilate. Almost none of us inhale enough and exhale mm-hmm. completely when we're under uh, in a significant amount of stress. And we have somatic complaints because that's one of the way that the body has all of these little itches and twitches and pin sticks and needles. And to me, I think that's one of the body informer systems is trying to say, I'm tired, Heather. Would you sit down? <laughs> I need some more. Mm-hmm. I need you to 
stop. But do we listen? No, we just push and push and push. But those are some of the things that we will notice, like I said before, and others, maybe long before they notice it in themselves. And as your colleague, I don't even have to be your dear friend, but as your colleague, I'm going to say, Heather, I'm noticing. And I, I just want you to know I'm here, but I'm going to suggest, you know, you take a pause, you take a walk, you take a breath, because you're doing too much, girlfriend. I'm going to say that. You're going to tell me to mind my business. I say, yeah, I'm going to mind my business. We'll be back in 10 minutes and we're going to take a walk. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but that that's just the way it goes. And I really encourage people to be loving meddlers to each other in the face of it. I wouldn't get mad at you because you're out of character and you get on my nerves. I would stop and say, if that's not her or his mode of operation, they're really struggling. I'm going to take mm-hmm. a pause and and say, you know, I got you, and I'm not going to give up on you. But I see you struggling. You don't see it, but I see it. Yeah, and it's that kind of bringing curiosity versus judgment to the person who's acting out. Absolutely. You nailed it. You nailed it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm struck by really a lot of the symptoms that you talked about are very similar to burnout. And um, what is the difference between burnout and compassion fatigue? For me, the best way to define it is to separate the workforce in the U.S. There's the human service providers and the rest of the workforce. I call them respectfully widget workers. They work on stuff. They make it, design it, beautiful stuff. They create stuff. They fix stuff, repair stuff. And they can have burnout. Yes, from an overwhelming amount of functional tasks. You could just do too much. It's too much pressure. It's too much demand. The time is relentless. That burden on yourself, you could get it. The difference is in the human service arena, you're not working on stuff, which you may be able to put out of your mind on Friday and go to happy hour. Not so with a human service provider because you're working with human suffering, human crisis, human chaos, human victimization, and you have responsibility whatever that role is, to help, protect, prevent, to save, to rescue, to help the healing process, if that makes sense. I don't care if you go to happy hour and you're on that second picture of margaritas. It's still with you. As a matter of fact, it goes home with you for the weekend. Mm-hmm. It stays with you while you're trying to have uh, festivities with the family. It, it's just always there. So that's one of the distinctions I made. Burnout by itself. I, you know, I work with uh, my time in the federal government. We aired some. I was a... Uh, um, employee assistants, some human uh, uh, traffickers. I mean, the, the the people who work on the airlines and different kinds of roles and stuff like that. And uh, they could get in a lot of trouble um, with uh, depression, loss of sleep, the illnesses that come from that, too much drinking, too much nervousness and stuff. And so it's a reality, but I want to keep it as functional tasks. Now, here, here's, here's the trick, though. The people in the human services, not only do you work directly with the human, but you've got a lot of functional pressures on you, too. Something called documentation. I ain't never going to forget that you never catch up. It just keeps coming. Court reports, process reports, critical incident reports, summaries, quality assurance, and all that stuff. Those pressures, those meetings, those demands, you could be burned out from that, but you still feel the compassion fatigue from the human issues that you're dealing with together. They're a perfect storm in this way. When you're so overwhelmed with your functional tasks, now I'm talking about myself, and you can own this if you will. I get an emergency call or a walk-in of a human thing, and I say, Lord, please don't let that be too much because I'm so backed up here on this stuff, this paperwork. But then, like, you know, I go down and see them, and of course it's too much, and I got to come back and bring that and add that to my list. But I'm so upset about the circumstances the situation that they're in, the hurt, the pain, the grief, the loss they may have experienced, that when I get back to the paper, I can even focus on the paper. My mind, that part of my mind, that little part of the brain, my short-term memory, my, my rational thinking, my critical thinking, my problem-solving is shot. Oh, Dr. Bruce Perry would say it's hijacked, it's not working. You see how it's a perfect storm? Mm-hmm. We struggle with both, but don't confuse one for the other. In truth, people need help with both. Mm-hmm. to release, reboot, but the family, the, the human crisis and suffering 
but maybe do some restructuring, uh, revamping how you handle the functional tasks, set up other kind of systems, set up new benchmarks to get things done that may be more realistic for you to do. Don't confuse the two. But yeah, I really, I really appreciate that distinction um, mm-hmm. between the functional tasks and its connection to burnout and the human uh, caring connected to mm-hmm. compassion fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. That makes so much more sense to me because I've always, it's always felt fuzzy for me in my mm-hmm. mind because there's, there's very similar symptoms um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I was like, how does this work? But now that makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Well, for years of most of my career and, I, and it still exists today, we have assigned much of the uh, breakdown or it doesn't necessarily have to be breakdown, but begin to be the frayed in the workforce as we attribute it to burnout. Um, and uh, and that made sense because that's all we had to work with. But that was a mistake because for the most part, if all you really had were a lot of functional tasks, there can be adjustments made. There can be reconfiguring of how you handle those responsibilities, the meetings, the the documentation and stuff like that. So that has a better prognosis for recovery or getting yourself back on some, you know, grounding. You'll never catch up with all that paper, but you could still get to a different place. Not so compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. This stuff is going with you to the grave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you can help clear up another thing that gets sticky in my mind. And that is um, really the role of empathy in compassion fatigue. Cause this is sticky in my mind too. Yeah. Cause it is sticky. Heather. It really is. Uh, empathy to me is one of those from heaven gifts is a wonderful quality to have. Uh, it helps us to understand that which doesn't make sense is out of the realm of our own personal experiences to be able to help somebody from a different culture, a different way of being, a different lifestyle, different kind of problems that people get in that you would not necessarily get in or don't, like I said, don't make sense to you. So the empathy is a beautiful gift to bring to the work. Yet, empathy is a two-edged sword. Because if you care, it gets to cut you deep, and it will. We feel for people. We could put ourselves in that place. We could imagine the level of suffering and hurt and pain and fear and grief. So it gets to cut us. Therefore, in my estimation, that the empathy, if you remember it as a gift that you bring to your service, your work, then it is to be preserved, is to be nurtured, is to be taken care of. Somebody, one of my, I see a therapist, um, and she always says, remember it's a gift, take care of it. Be thankful that you have it to bring so you've been able to help. I'm talking to you, Heather, so many people because of your empathy. But now that it's injured, when you go home, part of what you do to reboot and recharge, so, you know, take care of it. Put it back mm-hmm. in that beautiful box with a beautiful bow on it, if that makes any sense to you. It, you just, it does. You know, I, I feel that one for sure. Um, mm-hmm. For sure, because it's, you know, I consider myself to be fairly empathic and it's uh, really a gift that makes me good at the work that I do and Mm -hmm. sometimes uh does it it's painful um and uh, what I've been recently learning about myself is that that it's sometimes hard for me to identify my own feelings and needs versus Mm -hmm. someone else's because of that empathy so I've been doing a lot of work around trying to uh, feel the difference in that. Okay. What's mine and what's this person's, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, pro- probably a practice of a lifetime for me. You know, I heard a therapist that I work with, uh, she was talking to some of our clients and she had a habit of saying this because I'm one of these people I could be with you and you're crying. And I didn't even ask you what happened, but I'm already crying because I'm feeling for you. I love, I love you, uh-huh. Heather. But she said, she would say to me, she said, well, Beverly, what came up for you? What causes me to stop and think, what is it about your situation, your story in that moment that may have brought to the surface something in my history 
mm-hmm. whether it's current or whether it's far in the past. So to stop and reflect on what was triggered, if anything was triggered, or is it just I'm just feeling deeply for you? Does mm-hmm. that make sense to you? And when mm-hmm. you feel that too, it is good, and I think it is wisdom, and I think it is courageous and wise to feel what you feel and express it in whatever way that is to you. If you need to cry, if you need to do some gallows humor outside of the air, <laughs> if you need mm-hmm. to cuss, do it. Spoken mm-hmm. word, journal, whatever you need to do, but really do uh, nurture and preserve your empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I I appreciate that. That helps helps me. Uh, I don't know. Frame it. Feel it differently. Is how yeah. I'll say. <laughs> well, respect it for one thing. Respect it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that we have time to talk about really interventions or treatment protocols that you recommend for compassion fatigue? Mm-hmm. Well, what, to say this, I kind of boil my um, treatments, methods, techniques, I boil it down to this, that we must decompress the body. At the moment that something hits mm-hmm. us, whether we hear it, we see it, we feel it, we sense it, we smell it, uh, the body goes into instant constriction. And what that means is that the faucet tissue laying on top of the skeletal muscular structure tightens and embraces for the worse because there's a part of the brain that didn't identify what that is. So that's an automatic stress response. The problem with us is because we're not focused on us, we focus on them, whatever our role needs to be in their crisis, their emergency, is that we don't recognize it. And so as we continue to work, we continue to wade through, I think that's a term you use, I love that, uh, swim in their stuff. And then we take on the next and the next, that constriction gets tighter and tighter. And so healthy blood flow, oxygenated blood flow in your body is curtailed, as that makes sense to you. And all systems begin to try to kick in and compensate for others. So you're, you're in a, a, a stress state, which is unhealthy for the body. So the techniques that I always recommend are things to decompress. When I say to release, yes, talk it out, cry it out, scream it out, cuss it out, but then do something to decompress the body in the reboot, like the, a stretch or a very specialized, deep rhythmic kind of breathing that uh, uh, breaks up the constriction, expands the capillary so that the blood could flow through, uh, tends to relax kind of exercises, run for a minute or walk for a minute, uh, or do something. There's a whole list of it. Matter of fact, you'll find it in the book, a uh, list of those things. But to really decompress so that the body can begin to flow and, and all the systems can get the blood and oxygenation that they need to operate in a more optimal level. That's a critical to do. And I say, you don't wait till you go home and please stop waiting for the weekend. If I'm coming after you and I see you like, you know, lost all the color in your beautiful face. I say, you're going to stop right now. We're going to stretch. We're going to breathe. We're going to do something now. And like I said, you may say, but you need to leave me alone. I got too much to do. I say, I got to leave you alone for five more minutes, but I'm, I'm coming right back here. So do that <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, with each other. Also, my strategies really encourage people to engage in right brain activities. And this is part of your recharge activity. You could do it sometimes in the workdays because I encourage staff and agencies to set up opportunities to play, to laugh, for some games, for some dance, for some music, for some ridiculousness. And certainly by the time you go home. But the right brain activities are things like your appreciation of color and music and art and creativity, making things, you know, using your fine motor coordination, design, um, music, uh, write poetry or whatever the case is, play crafts. Some people love, uh, my managers love gardenings and stuff or clay. But the right brain, if you reactivate that, which is kind of shut down because we basically operate too much in the left brain, and that's really important, your logic, your reason, your math, your oral expression, that's really important. But that all by itself kind of leaves us a little neurotic because we're always trying to make sense of what don't make sense. Does that make sense to you? So mm-hmm. you want the right brain releases um, endorphins, dopamines, the legal ones, uh, serotonins, if that makes sense. That those good kind of chemistries that allows us to think outside the box, see a bigger picture. When we hit the wall, we can say, okay, what's the next best thing? When you think things are impossible, you can see an array of possibilities. So you want to engage in that stuff. If it could be built into the work, and I believe it should, 
I do, without getting yourself fired. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop and laugh, stop and play. But certainly by the time you get home, me and my kids, they got into habits. Sometimes they get on my nerves at the door, and then I break out and pretend I'm Frankenstein because that's what they were Frankenstein. And they like to run and do hide and seek. And something about that was really, really funny for me. I'd be upset, but I start laughing because they always went and hide in the same place where I could see them, and they think I couldn't see them. They used to crack me up, if that makes sense. <laughs> but did you do mm-hmm. some things like that to kind of that chemistry from the right brain kind of overrides the negative chemistry where you're in that service push uh, demand high pressured mode. And I encourage people to do those again, those there's listings of those things in my book, but play and have fun. I I remember even Bruce Perry really highlighted that as uh, a major healer for people to laugh, to play. Mm -hmm. I, I watch a lot of humorous things on TV on Netflix, so stand-up comedy. I don't even care that they curse anymore. I just, make me laugh. Make me mm-hmm. laugh. So th- those are the things. But like I said, the main thing is to mitigate the effects of the work that you do. And you do it that way. Yeah. Well, and it helps us to remember that there's good and fun in the world versus just seeing all the dark. That's right. That's right. You just reminded me of something. Engage in friends. Now, we got a lot of people in our lives, but some of our people, they kind of drain us. Engage in friends that pull you into those fun things. The people who are closest to me are ridiculous. You say, well, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. <laughs> and that's how I, say, I don't feel like it. I say, no, you're going to do it anyway. You know, and don't let us have to come over there and crash your house. What we're going to do. And that's the kind of people I need to pull me out of the dark into the light, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I that makes so much sense. I love that. Mm-hmm. I can think of people in my life that I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do that. And you, it's yes, we need more of those people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Or I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my orchestra people. The other folks in the balcony, way in the back. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I have to really check in with myself on if I can see those people some days like, nope, I, I don't have enough energy for you today. Uh, well, I've enlisted my people to come after me. Don't wait for me to think that I have time because we don't in our mm-hmm. mind. Do you hear mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, my, 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 who am I call my posse? They don't wait for me. They said, Beverly, I saw your garage up. I know you're home. <laughs> <laughs> so I just get a text. They say, my best friend, Ray, he says, it's time. He says, you know, we're going to cocktail or Zoom and plan what we're going to do Saturday. They come after me. Because if they ask us when we have time and we're going to look at our, our calendar and say we don't. Mm-hmm. So, no, we reverse that thing. Give them give them the tasks to come after mm-hmm. you. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I know you do a lot of work uh, with organizations really on um, preventing compassion fatigue. And so what are some of those best practices that you recommend? To the managers, I ask them to look at themselves first and know that they need to um, respect their compassion fatigue because they hold theirs and they hold their staff as well uh, to monitor and engage where they are in those moments as well. And then to create opportunities for staff. I believe that most, the beginning of the week, depending on how people, some people, emergency teams are in and out of the office all day and you don't have people in but do check-ins at the beginning of the meeting, grounding sessions at the beginning of the meeting, grounding at the end of the meeting, um, end of the week check-ins, beginning of the week kind of check-ins. And don't let people tell you about the cases. Uh, how are you? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? And I have a rule. Nobody gets to tell me that's no me for any period of time that I'm fine. That's a famous professional fib. <laughs> You're not fine. Mm-hmm. Want you, but you may be, but I want you to stop and think, engage. Am I okay? Mm-hmm. I want you to think for you say, well, today is a better day than yesterday, or well, I'm not doing as good as I really could. Maybe I wish I still. I want you to just stop and kind of check. That's the kind of thing. Build in those little structures in the office, depending on how your operations are, uh, how your staff lineup is, who's in, who's out. Uh, one of the managers in a group where they work with babies who are born drug exposed, and the nurses and the social workers run out on emergencies all the time. And she hooked in a sound system. I, as a Tibetan chime bowl, I had other people, when they hear that chime go off, they just stop. 
mm. wherever you are standing and sitting. And she said she hooked it up to her sound system so you could just whew, stop and decompress for a moment and then move back in. It lasts about a whole two minutes and 40 seconds. Just listen to that kind of thing. Uh, the, one of the veterans agencies is one stop. They have everything, the employment, the housing, the mental health, the whole thing going. And uh, she has a dance or she called it a crazy room. And they get in there and they put on some crazy music like the uh, the wobble. And they just the staff, they just go crazy for a moment. Uh, some people have games, competitive games at lunchtime or in the, in the atrium or some teams take walks together. Or I had a club when I was at the VA. And uh, we would walk up the stairs together at the same time every day, whoever was available. And uh, the competition, who could make it up 10 flights of steps? I had a great body back then. <laughs> so, was, so you figure out ways to build in self-care. But the most important thing to me, one of the most important things is for managers to model self-care so that staff from different kinds of cultures or ethics about work will feel safe to say, I'm not okay. I don't know what the heck mm-hmm. I'm doing today. I'm really struggling mm-hmm. today. You'll need to have be the eyes behind my my back uh, to kind of notice me. I want people to be that safe to say that because to the extent that they could own that they're struggling, then they could get the help they need in the moment so that they can move through the day. I may mm-hmm. say to my staff, you know, going downstairs and get a cup of tea, just take a pause and stop. There ain't no sense in me telling her or him to push through because the quality of the caliber of the work, or they're going to sit there staring at it, because that part of the brain won't cooperate. Uh, I say that I know this is the same thing when you tell managers that when you're looking at what appears to be procrastination, stop and consider that they're in a heightened state of overwhelm, and the brain is not going to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Not. So tell them to go ahead and take a pause. Give them an administrative leave day. Don't make no visitation if that's possible. And go work on some documentation. Go find you a nice little spot in the atrium or wherever the case is. Or work in the cyber cafe across the street. I don't care. Because the benchmark is to come back with the work. I don't need to watch you do it. If that makes sense to you. Mm. So those are some of the things I encourage people to do. Ultimately, it still all boils down to early intervention. All of the managers, all of the coworkers should notice that list of personal and professional impacts and when you see a sign of it, when I see you out of character of how you normally operate, your normal energy is just not there, then I take the moment that I'm concerned and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to nudge a little bit and I'm going to let you know I'm here for you. I get it. I affirm. And if I can't get traction too, then there's another level where you see a staff member whom I would say, because I lost a few staff. Uh, colleagues to suicide when you're in trouble. I'm going to talk to the supervisor. I'm not tattling on you. I'm going to say my friend is struggling and we can't kind of get some traction. Mm-hmm. Then we probably get you to EAP, employees assistance, or some additional kind of help and support, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take that responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. that's my thing, agencies, to try to prevent the worst aspect of compassion fatigue. Yeah, and it sounds like it really is um, two a few things, but there's connection, making sure that people are seen and heard, and that mm-hmm. we're stopping that automatic like busyness of just yes. going, 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 and getting people to not do the automatic like, "Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine," and then mm-hmm. we just move on. It's like, no, right. how are you really? Like, mm-hmm. I really want to know how are you. Um, mm-hmm. and having that space for people to, mm-hmm. to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Push the, push the envelope. That's where I step out of the, the realm of boundaries. And if I know, you know, it depends on the level that you know people sometimes. If I know sure. you, I'm going to say, is that okay? Are the kids okay? Are they getting on your nerves? Cause I know you, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. not just, I might, I might bring something up to kind of provoke you to talk about that, but the, the, t- take the level Understand and respect people's cultural differences, their gender issues or whatever, their sense of pride and work ethic. Uh, uh, you disrespect it, but don't let that be the deciding factor when your colleague is struggling. Don't, don't, don't do, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Respectfully and do be that loving meddler. 
to help people get back on track. And sometimes I've admitted too, you know, I would say to you, um, having had a serious situation with a child or a parent, I says, you know, uh, I kind of saw that, I noticed that thing, and that thing really knocked me, rocked me to the core, knocked the energy out of me. And if you got any way that you're coping with it, let me know, because I'm not. So I just let you know, affirm your experience, whether you're ready to own it or not. But I've said that it got to me, which maybe makes it safer for you to say it got to me too. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. And, yeah. um, by sharing that, I open up a door for some conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's that vulnerability piece of saying like, wow, this, this was a terrible case and it yeah. really hurt. It really hurt me or mm-hmm. I really felt this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. as we begin to wrap up today, is there anything else that you feel is important for our listeners to know or be aware of? Uh, that would be accountability partners. Accountability partners is in our workplace and even in our like community service. I used to volunteer a lot before the quarantine. Um, appoint people. To notice you, give them permission to take that role. To see when you're kind of speeding up, moving too fast, doing too, being too controlling, being out of character. Give them the permission to step out of boundary and to say, Beverly, you're doing too much. You need to take a pause. You've done a pretty good job here. Slow it down. Step off that wheel. Mm-hmm. Take care of yourself. To do that, too, um, because like I said, they will notice it first. They just need to feel safe. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you something else, too. The people you pick is important. It is not always the people at home, because sometimes for many of us, the people at home and our closer friends need us to be OK so we could be available to them. So they don't really want to hear too much about the job. Oh, yeah, yeah, OK. Now, what about us? And so and I'm not mad at them. That's just the reality. Um, the people at work get it. Mm-hmm. They know what you do. They know what the struggle is. They know what the mission is. They know the scope of things that can happen. But still, you pick those, pick those people who have the strength and character to push the button, uh, boundary. Like I would say, um, I, I have, he, she said, leave me alone. I got too much to do that kind of thing. But I'm picking you because you're going to say, yeah, I'm going to leave you alone for about five more minutes, but we're going to stop. We're going to call mm-hmm. it a day. Another, that's why I want you because you got that. You're going to have that little push to come back at me. And I got to say, okay, 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 Heather. That makes me check myself. So that's what I want to say. Make that decision. Use the wisdom that would good uh, be good to have an accountability partner because I don't trust myself to stop. I still don't. Mm-hmm. 46 years of experience. I'm a best-selling author on the subject. I don't trust myself to stop. But I got my friend ready. He will send me a text. He said, don't let me have to come over there and knock on the door. <laughs> Get, away from that. Get away from that computer. I know what mm-hmm. you're doing. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And um that that's what I want to say. And, and this do it for you. Do it for you. Pick those people uh, to pull you away from the dark and into the light and engage you in fun and activities and uh, can help you keep a better balance on separating you from the service you do. Here's a final thing I wanted to say this occurred to me is be careful not to over identify with your work or define yourself by your service. Uh, what you, your service is what you do, but you and your fun and your lifestyle is who you are. Never confuse having a career with having a life. That's what I want to say. Thank you, Beverly. Uh, you have been a wealth of wisdom and just really a joy to connect with today. Um, it's this conversation has been meaningful for me and I really want to thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Heather. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank 
Thank you for listening to Cassatt Conversations, your resource for exploring behavioral health topics. We hope you found today's conversation timely and meaningful. Please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you want to learn more, visit us at our blog at cassatteondemand.org. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassette Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassette.org.